for the next 30 or 35 minutes, what I'd like to do is I'd like to say some things about the book of Acts because that is going to be our series this year. We're going to continue from the book of Luke and go right into Acts. And as many of you know, uh, many times Luke and Acts in, in the, uh, uh, the ancient world were known as Luke-Acts because, as you'll see in a moment, they, they were probably written by, most likely written by the same author. And that's going to be our series this year to talk about uh, how the church started and to try to learn some things about our journey as a community in the process. So... Um, If you could look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, just a few brief thoughts by way of introduction this morning. Then I want to give you a devotional thought from one of my favorite passages in Acts, and then we're going to take the Lord's table, and that will be our morning. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you'll stand, please. And as I read this prologue, if... If you say, wow, this reminds me of the prologue of Luke, exactly. It's one of the reasons why even the mention, the re-mention of this man, Theophilus, who apparently is uh, the target of both of these works, Luke and Acts, a man who apparently was struggling with his faith, many gods in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and this brother seemingly wanted to say, well, what do Christians really believe? How is it grounded in history? And... um, And so Luke uh, apparently writes these two works to share with this man exactly what happened, what are the facts of the matter surrounding this man named Jesus of Nazareth. So this is the prologue to to Acts. Verses 1, 2, 3, actually, yeah, 1, 2, and 3, all right? The former account I made, referring to the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive. Interesting uh, translation here. The word is actually a participle, uh, which, as you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, often has the ing ending. It's kind of a very active uh, verbal form. And so he, he could have, he, really, you could translate this, to whom he also presented himself living which would have been a shocking thing to say because the brother had just been crucified on a Roman cross. And if you got crucified, you got absolutely dead. I will promise you that. And so I think think Luke, he could have used a regular verb here, but instead he said, it says, to whom he also presented himself living after his suffering by many infallible proofs. The phrase means you couldn't doubt it once you saw him over and over. He was eating and he was touching. He was alive. He wasn't an apparition He wasn't a vision. He was back from the dead, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to, well, of course, the kingdom of God. All right, you may be seated. So I have printed out for you a more extensive page of introductory remarks that is back on the welcome table. Have at it. Uh, If you want to have those. Keith already got his folded them up. He he kept saying, I got mine, I got mine. So there's 49 of them left. And if we need more, we'll print more. So here are just three thoughts, uh, introductory thoughts that will kind of launch us into um, the study of this this book. First of all, whoever wrote Luke also wrote Acts, as we just alluded to. If you go to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you'll see the similarities in the prologue 
And, uh, you know, Luke is never mentioned specifically as the author, but it's just been historians over the years have, have uh, looked at, at Paul's traveling companions. There's a section in, in Luke where it goes from uh, singular first person to, uh, or third person talking about somebody else to the we passages. And so uh, some scholars think that Paul had a traveling companion that is giving an eyewitness account of what he was doing on some of his journeys that start in Acts 13 and go through the end of the, journey, end of the book. Um, whether it was Luke or not, we don't know. We know from the book of Colossians, the book of Philemon, the book of 2 Timothy, that Luke apparently was a brother who was very close to Paul. He was in a couple of these spots with Paul. Um, so you just start putting things together, and they think that Luke was a likely author of the Gospel of Luke. And thus, since the author of Acts is the same author as Luke, uh, the book of Luke, you say, well, if he was the author of Luke, he must be the author of Acts as well. So we don't really know who wrote uh, this piece of history, but what we believe is that it's possible it's this man named Luke, Luke the beloved physician, he's called in one of Paul's letters, uh, and that if he wrote Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. What we do know is that whoever wrote one also wrote the other. Secondly, uh, what this work is, the Acts of the Apostles, is a history of Jesus' followers after his resurrection. Again, uh, to whom he presented himself living or to whom he presented himself alive. And what, you, what I want you to know from this prologue and this word living is that without Jesus coming back from the dead, there is no history of Jesus' followers because Jesus' followers would have died off. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter uh, 5, it's very interesting that there's this brother named uh, Gamaliel uh, who was one of the chief Pharisees in that era. He actually was Paul's teacher. Um, we know from the latter parts of Acts. And um, Gamaliel, you know, the the Sanhedrin is freaking out because these Christians are starting to take root by Acts 5, and there's several thousand of them. And uh, Gamaliel says, look, my brothers, we've had several rebellious-type leaders that that came from our ranks that rebelled against Rome. One guy's name was Thutis. One guy's name was Judas. And... uh, Both of them got squelched by Rome. They got killed, just like this Jesus did. And so their followers died out. And so he says, um, uh, just hang on. If this is real, if the brother really came back from the dead, we can't stop it. And if he didn't come back from the dead, we won't need to stop it. Eventually, uh, this movement will die out like all other movements do when their leaders die. So what we need to know is from this prologue is that Luke is basically saying this is not just the history of the spread of another religious ideology. It's the the history of the followers of a man who rose from the dead and what he had to say about the kingdom of his God. Does that make any sense? Okay. And then thirdly... um, the pow- it's the story of the powerful message of God's kingdom spreading to the ends of the earth and spreading in the face of the evil but powerful Roman Empire. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that no matter what the empire throws at them, 
these followers of the risen Jesus overcame. So you'll go to a passage like uh, chapter 1 where these followers are huddled together. They're, they're petrified. And yet in chapter 2, Peter, as scared as he was, and you know what kind of scary, uh, scared Peter was most of the time. He stood up and he, uh, he preached this message and three to 5,000 people trust in Christ. So you've got fear in chapter 1. By chapter 2, the thing has exploded in spite of the fear. Are you catching this? And then you've got chapter 4. You've got Peter and John who are thrown in prison. But nevertheless, uh, right after they're thrown into prison, a few more thousand believe. And then you have chapter 7 where Stephen is stoned. The first martyr is stoned. And then chapters 8 and 9, nevertheless, the first Samaritans come to Christ and the first Gentiles come to Christ. So no matter what happens in Acts, um, the followers of this, this king of this kingdom of God who rose from the dead, no matter what the enemy tries to perpetrate upon them, um, they seem to win in the midst of, of all the trial. They seem to come out on top, and the kingdom of God continues to spread. And remember, the Roman Empire was, to date, the most evil, and there had been a, there'd been a flock of evil empires in that day. I mean, check out the Assyrians. Uh, they were not nice folk. Uh, check out the Babylonians um, and some of their practices. But the Roman Empire was despotic and, and evil to the core and about suppressing folk through power. Uh, the reason they crucified folk close to the road is so that when people walk by, they look up and know that if they messed with Rome, that would be their fate as well. And so that was Rome. They, they had soldiers. They had armies. They controlled the world for hundreds of years. They controlled the entire, uh, basically the entire civilized world. And yet this group of ragtag followers, following a king from another kingdom, he called the kingdom of God. Somehow, in these 28 chapters, we see the history of this uh, kingdom of, 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 of humans. We might have even have called them frightened uh, weaklings because they followed this king who came back from the dead. We see from chapter 1 through verses 28, we see this kingdom overcoming the most powerful example of satanic brutality birthed in a kingdom um, that history had ever seen before. Because where do we find Paul by chapter 28? Right up in the bowels of Rome, the capital of that despotic kingdom. Isn't that amazing? So, so when, we think of, when we think of the book of Acts, uh, we, we must not think of just a few little pieces of history. We must realize that we've got, um, well, today's Super Bowl Sunday, and and I don't know if you're as sick as I am of the commentary, but I just, man, I'm almost 63 years old, man. I've, I was around with the first Super Bowl when I was 13, and I'm just, like, I'm just done. I don't know who won them. I don't know what. But they're having these debates about the greatest Super Bowls of all time, and they're showing these clips of the greatest victories and the greatest catches and the greatest last-minute whatever. Well, when I, it made me think of that when I was thinking of Acts. This is not just another little story. This is the story of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God upon everything that the enemy could muster to keep you and I down, to keep you and I wounded, to keep you and I suffering. That's what Rome represented. This is the story of how the kingdom of God will not fail, how the kingdom of God uh, will not be overcome, how Light cannot be overcome by darkness. 
Even when we feel weak, even when we think we've got nothing, even when we say we don't know all the right verses, we don't have any training, and we maybe even our bodies are sick, and we, I'm telling you, this is the story of how if we keep our eyes on our king, the resurrected one, that no evil shall overcome the kingdom that we represent as we follow this Christ. That's what this story is about. That's what this story is about. And the way we're going to outline the book, very, very simply, if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we'll talk about next week, this is a, just a, a brief outline of the book. It's located right in this verse. But you shall receive power, talking about the apostles and us by proxy. Um, it's talking to us as well. When you sh- but you shall receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so this is the outline of the book of Acts. There, there are many ways to outline it and to break it down, but this is the outline. First, chapters 1 through 7, the good news of the kingdom of God taken to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7, we have Stephen's martyrdom, and so the disciples are launched to where? Judea and Samaria. Acts 8 through 12, it's the taking of the news of the kingdom of God to uh, Samaria, which is the northern part of Israel, and to the, to the other parts of Judea around Jerusalem. And then thirdly, from 13 through 28, in the journeys of Paul uh, that, I rec- uh, that I talked about just a moment ago, the taking of this message of the kingdom to the end of the earth, even into Rome itself, the capital of Satan's empire in that day, the gospel right up in the bowels of the enemy's gut where it began to rot the Roman Empire from the inside out. They didn't have to, uh, you know, elect a certain leader. I expected to get a little more reaction on that. On that. Everybody's going, is anybody else going to giggle? I better not giggle. Somebody will think something. <laughs> They, 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 Paul was an activist, but it, it wasn't about a political party. It was about the kingdom of God. He wasn't trying to lobby some Roman senator. It was about the kingdom of God. It was about following Christ, the king of that kingdom, who, who showed that he was worth following, not only by the way he loved people, but by the fact that he came back from the dead. He was dead, and he showed himself living through many infallible proofs. And so when they were persecuted, um, they just remember, he came back from the dead, man. He loves me. He, and he came back from the dead, and he has all power, and I don't have to be afraid. Even if Rome takes my life, I'm going to live forever. My, my king showed me that I'm going to live forever, that death can't, even death can't win. I'm going to live forever. And so when you see these folk, when we go through, because really we're trying to figure out what this means for us. What does this mean for us? What does the story of those ancient followers of Jesus mean for us? When we, um, when we, when we look at these stories, we've got to keep remembering, these folk are us. They're not different. They didn't wear halos. They felt, they were afraid, they had feelings, but they kept their eyes on the risen Christ, the living one, and his kingdom, and, and they prevailed. And uh, that kingdom, which started with that little unknown prophet 
who was murdered on a Roman cross is still prevailing today. Um, and, and, and what we have to ask ourselves as we go into the next stage of our history, you know, with one of your leaders, that would be me transitioning to a different role, which means that other leaders will be in different roles and we're going to have a new senior pastor. We have to ask ourselves, what is this book, this book of Acts about for us? And I think some of us have tended to be maybe a little, feeling a little timid and maybe a little afraid. And I get that because change is hard. And you've heard this statement, haven't you? All change is loss. All loss has to be grieved. Right? How many of you have heard that before? It's in the Bible. No, it's not. It's not in the Bible. But, but some of you were like, okay. I looked it up in my devotions this week. It ought to be in the Bible. Um, no, sorry. Sorry. Not, sorry. That was a bad one. That was, that was bad. All change is loss. All loss has to be grieved. So I understand why some of us are feeling different feelings. Carl and I have certain feelings, of course. But I want to tell you this, and, and if you think I'm just saying this to pump you up, you, you just do not know me. You just do not know me. The best days of Hope Community Church are ahead. The best days. There is something that's happened here in the first 15 years of our history something that's been birthed that is so endemic to all of us. We are a, a true community. There's something that's been birthed of the kingdom of God with, you know, that love of our king at the center for all people. I'm, I'm not talking a smarmy love. I'm talking a love that will say, I will die for you. I will die for you. That kind of love that transcends everything that is divided and even if it starts to divide us again, that love that takes us up into the middle of that conflict to work it out to work it out because we're not about a kingdom that's about this world. We're about the kingdom of God. There is something that has been birthed here that I believe with all of my heart. And I'm not the only one that believes this. When I talk to my covenant brothers and sister pastors at the pastor's conference, folk know about Hope Community Church. How do they know about us? How do they know we've got just a couple hundred folk? We're not mega anything. Um, of course, we do have people shooting documentaries, though. I don't know. That may be pretty cool. That's kind of the thing. As soda backs off with his camera. We're, we're, look, we're nobody. But that's the point about the kingdom of God. It was birthed through a bunch of nobodies that trusted the king, the resurrected king. So when the enemy whispers to you, you're nobody, you can just say, just to go along with his joke, just go, uh-huh, what else you got for me, bro? Because I already know that in the sense you're talking about, I'm nobody. But then you can come back and say, but to my father, I'm his son. I'm his daughter. And that makes me somebody. And I got to tell you, you mess with one of his kids. And uh, to quote the old... Uh, um, Wyatt Earp movie, well, well but Tombstone. Um, here's what God's saying to you. Uh, I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. You mess with me. You're messing with one of the king's kids. I should have said, and heaven's coming with me. That was kind of the opposite, but you get the point. 
Honestly, I want us not to be afraid or feel the fear. And let's get our eyes on the king anyway for this next season. It's going to be amazing. There's going to be attack, I can promise you. There's going to be mess that we're going to have to deal with. We keep our eyes on the king just like they did in Acts. And we're going to find us up in the belly of the bowels of Rome, spreading the kingdom message to rot whatever of the kingdom of this world is in our metro area. Not the people. We're going to be there to rescue the people but to rot the system, the cosmos, which is that system that the enemy wants to make everybody think is the system. Um, That's us. That's going to be us. I'm not speaking megalomaniac stuff for you, to you. I'm talking what I believe to be the truth after 15 years here at Hope. Our best days are yet to come. They're going to be kingdom days. They're going to be Acts 29 days. They're going to be days where we're going to see the power of our king. No matter how weak we feel, no matter how jacked up we are, we're going to see the king doing for us exactly what he did in the book of Acts. I should turn that book around like this. In the book of Acts so many years ago. So how about that? There's our introduction to the book of Acts. hope that makes you a little excited. There's a quote here. You want to put the quote up? This is good. I don't know where I found this. This is not dry history, but the unlikely and thus incredible story of how a group of devastated, frightened men and women took the message of an obscure, crucified Jewish prophet to the ancient world, a world wounded, corrupted, and divided by the Roman Empire. It is also the story of how the good news of that kingdom message, Jesus' victory over death, changed the world forever. That's why we're looking at the book of Acts. Amen. So, I got 10 minutes before we go to communion, and I want to just share um, one, my favorite text, just in a devotional way, but my favorite text in Acts, and there's a bunch of them. I mean, I had like 10 favorites and had to whittle it down to one. This is the one. Acts 17. Would you turn there just for a second with me? And Soda, if you don't mind, if you don't care, just in these last 10 minutes, can you, yeah, if you don't mind, that's cool. We're so glad you're here, by the way. We're so honored that you all are here to be with us. We really are really honored. We really are honored. And to be with our brother, John, whom we hope, John, we hope you're with us for a long, long, long time. Amen. I pray so. I pray so. So. This is what occurs to me many times in my own Christian journey. I don't know if this is what occurs to you. This is what occurs to me. I, you know, we sang that, that song today that Ron had to sing about knowing you, Jesus. Like, it's the thing. And so I can't sing that song without weeping because you guys know my story. The love of Jesus saved my life. For me, and I'm not saying I always act like this because I'm a human being, but for me, this Jesus isn't just a slice of the pie. He's the pie. When Ron said, I was was with you, brother, when you said, you guys may not know me, but if not for him and his love, I'm sure not standing here today. 
So when I think of sharing Jesus, I think of sharing about my lover. I think of sharing about my life giver. I think of sharing about my friend who loves me no matter what. He, even when he rebukes me, he loves me. When he disciplines me, he loves me. He's everything to me. And I think that whoever I'm talking to, you could be driving a Benz. You could have the most powerful position in the world. And I'm going to be thinking this. You need to know my Jesus. You need to know Jesus of Nazareth, the king of another kingdom. So what freaks me out mostly theologically, your, your, your pastor is going to tell you right now my most significant freak out theological thought. When I get freaked, this is the thought that freaks me out. What if not everyone gets to hear about my king? What if some folk just don't get to hear? What if they don't get to know? Not just for this life, because I think we're dead in the water in this life, let alone eternal life. What if they don't get to know about my king? I think the book of Acts begins to answer that question because this message is going to the ends of the earth. It was prophesied to Abraham This isn't going to just be a blessing to you, but through your loins, it's going to bless the world. The Jews in that day had forgotten that for a hot second. They'd been so oppressed. They'd been so oppressed. It's understandable why they'd forgotten that this was for the ends of the earth. But Jesus came back, and the way he embraced people, you know how he was in the Gospels? He embraced everybody. The people most marginalized. He he didn't go up to them with some kind of pity, like, well, uh, you know, he didn't condescend. He, he went up to the most marginalized and they felt like he was looking to them as if they were an equal, even though he was the king of kings and lord of lords. That's how he loved. And so um, that Jesus showed us the face of our God who is acted out in acts. It's for all people. But, 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 but. Even then we could feel that God, okay, I want it to be fair and equitable. I want it to go to all people. But then in terms of actually involving himself, he could be saying, look, I set the thing in motion. Let's see how it works. In other words, he could be a bit non-passionate about whether all these folk actually get to hear about the life-giving power and love of his Jesus. So in the middle of this book that at least on paper says it's going to everybody, so you know, chill. I want to know more. What's in his heart? And Acts 17, I think, tells us. So here's Paul. He's at Mars Hill. He's at the place in Athens where the philosophers came to debate religion. It says in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, or the English rendering of Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things, you cats are religious, man. You guys, you guys are the most religious of all the religious ones. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, 
I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Dang, man. You don't just name certain gods. You say, and by the way, if your God didn't get named, here's an altar to your God. It doesn't even have a name. So you guys are so all-encompassing, man. You're about all the gods. It's pretty cool. But then he says, so therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, Paul starts to get a little sarcastic. <laughs> Him I proclaim to you. You making room in this statue to the unknown God for a God that isn't a part of your Greco-Roman pantheon? I'm going to tell you who he is. This is who he is, 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. You know what this says? Our God is not deistic. At the beginning of our country, we had a lot of religious brothers and sisters who were framing our Constitution, whatever, and some of them were solid Christians, and some of them were not believers in much of anything, and some of them were what we call deists, God who is distant, put the world in motion, sat back and said, have at it. This text says our God's not like that. This text says that our God is the God that takes every human being and places Every human being, seven and a half billion people on the planet today, there's not one who has been born where they've been born, the country they've been born in, the time in history that they've been born in that was not put there by God himself on purpose. He's not backed off saying, look at all these people being born. How did that happen? But that started with Adam and Eve. I put Adam and Eve there, and look at, look at what's happened since then. He, this text says that he's right up in saying, when that sperm and egg come together, it was for my ultimate purpose. However, that sperm and egg got there, my ultimate purpose for this place, this time right there, I put them right there. So I get freaked out about the fact that I, I am a part of the greatest power and privilege on the planet in this day. In fact, I may be, in terms of all of history, be a part of the greatest power and privilege that's ever been bestowed on certain people in the human race. Sometimes I feel really bad about it until I talk about my dysfunctional background and the, abu the abuse in my family. And then I'm like on the other side going, why didn't, you didn't get abused? Well, how did, why did God put me in this family? You see what I'm saying? Depending on where you're coming from, whether you've been hurt, feel marginalized, or somewhere where you don't want to be, or whether you feel like this is, man, it, I'm the greatest, I'm privileged to be, all I can say is, God says, don't worry about it, son. I've got every one of the seven and a half billion people on the planet in the palm of my hands. I put them right where I wanted them. They're not alone. They're not an accident. They're not like a pinball in a pinball machine reacting if they don't want to be because I'm right there. I put them right there for a purpose. And then he says, look at this. Why? So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. 
So why did he put me in the midst of a religious but incredibly dysfunctional family in the middle of Kokomo clan territory, Indiana, so that I might seek him and grope for him and find him? Why did he put that uh, little 10-year-old boy in uh, Afghanistan being raised in in an Islamic home uh, with some privilege and some pain so that he might seek him and grope for him and find him. You think of anybody uh, within your purview. Think of people that you've just seen on CNN. Think of people that you've just seen Googled on your phone, living in places maybe where you didn't want to live or where you wish you were living. Can I tell you, God's got each of us, and this is what he wants for us. He wants us to experience the pain of our emptiness to the point, wherever we are, and whether we're living in the Taj Mahal or whether we're living out of a cardboard box, everyone has that vacuum inside that needs the love of God. He said, I want you to experience that pain and get honest about it. And when you do, you know what you're going to do? You're going to seek me. You're going to grope for me. And when you do, my part of the bargain is you're going to find me. The word seek means seek. The word grope is a more graphic term. It means to seek. Now get this. For some of you are going, yeah, but for some of us it's easier. I just said that. I just said that. I get that. It seems at least to be easier. Grope means, you know, the NIV translates reach out for. It's one of the reasons I don't like the NIV very much. It's so vanilla. Reach out for. That's not what the word means. That's what the word seek means. The word means to seek as if we're blind. We've got a sense. We're we're longing for something, but we're seeking. We're we're, we're stumbling. People are making fun of us. Uh, People aren't helping us find our way. We can't see. We can't see. We we're, we're in another world religion. We, we, we can't find our way. We can't find this true God. We don't know how to get there. Uh, grope. He says some of us are going to have to, some of us are going to have to grope. But when you know the emptiness, when you feel the emptiness, it's so, that vacuum is so painful. When you've tried to fill it with everything under the sun and nothing fills it, all the religion in the world and all the power in the world and all the money in the world and all the relationships in the world doesn't feel that emptiness, you start to not just seek. You start to get intense. You start to grope. You start to say, I have to, if I don't find whatever it is, whoever it is that will fill this up, I'm a dead man. I, I'm, I'm groping. And you might say, is, is God playing a game with us? So he's going, look at them. They're all down there seeking and groping. Heck No. Because remember, the way he created the thing to begin with, there was no seeking and groping. He was right there walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. They didn't have to seek. They didn't have to grope. He's right there. That was his intent. And we were the ones that one day looked over at that tree and said, you know, you're cool and all, God. But I think there's something over there that maybe will fill me up just a little bit more than you do. 
And so the fact that we have to seek and grope today, my brothers and sisters, don't put that on God. We have to put that on us. When we left that garden, the human race was vaulted into a seeking and groping existence. And then you might say, still, why seek and grope? We screwed up. Why doesn't he just forgive us and just be there and say, here I am? Because this universe, my brothers and sisters, is not just about love or belief, or not just about believing. It's about love. And love seeks and love gropes and love pursues and love wants to be loved by the beloved. God created us not just to believe in him and to bow before him because he's so powerful. Listen, he, he created us so that he could love us. He wanted it to be a garden kind of existence, but we're post-fall, post-garden, so we have to seek and grow. He will not force himself on us. He will not make us choose him. He wants us to feel the vacuum because now that we're post-garden, that's what we've got, and he wants us to say, I'm done pursuing anything but that which will fill this hole. He wants us to seek. He wants us to grope. And then it says, Paul says, and he wants us to find. The Greek word that's used here, the verb, is used in what's called the optative mood in the Greek language. The optative mood is not used very often. When it's used, it's usually significant. It's, it's the mood of wish or hope. So when Paul says, this is the God who created us, put us right where we're supposed to be so that we might seek and grope, then he says, because his, listen now, his deepest desire is that every one of his sons and daughters finds, that we find. When you and I are thinking, but he, does he know about that kid over there? He knows. And what does he want? He wants that young man to seek and grope so that he will Fine. It's God's heart that, that we find. It's God's heart today that you and I seek and grope and find that intimate relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And what he promises is if we seek and grope, we will find. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 is just, he just, all he's got is the Hebrew scriptures, and he's, he's in a chariot. He's, he's in Judea, probably been to the temple to worship, and he's just reading the scripture. So you know what God does? You know what he sees? That young man is seeking. That young man is groping. So you know what he does? Remember what he does? He takes Philip, who was over here, takes Philip, picks him up supernaturally, transports him right down in the desert in Gaza, so that he looks over, and there's the Ethiopian eunuch. And so Philip goes, what are you reading there, bro? The guy goes, I'm reading Isaiah 53, coincidence, about this one who took, uh, took our sins on his shoulders. And, and Philip goes, do you believe in him? The guy goes, I, 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 I do. And, and he goes, is there anything that, do you want to be baptized? He said, can I? He goes, right down here in this pool. You, you know why? Because, because he saw the seeking, groping heart, and even if he had to move someone supernaturally from one place to another to give him the news about that God who would fill that hole, God would do it. Even if it had to be a dream, 
even if it had to be a series of visions. You know, we hear about Islam. We hear that in countries that are closed to the gospel, people are having dreams about Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because they have seeking, groping hearts looking for this God of love. God says it is not just accidental that when we seek and grope that we find because it is my heart that all of my sons and daughters find me. And then finally he says, because I'm not far from each one of them. I don't know, sometimes I think we think that he's over yonder paying attention to whatever he's paying attention to. But can I tell you where he is today? He's hovering right around Sue. He's just hovering. He's right there. He's hovering around Rita. He's hovering around Kyoko. He's hovering around John. And John, I wouldn't presume to know anything about your journey for the last 50 years. But one thing I believe is that the God who loves you with all of his heart was hovering around you every moment of every day of the last 50 years of your life. You know, I'm a father. Uh, If you check my Instagram deal, I found a picture of Andrea when she was a baby girl. And I posted that my baby is now having a baby. Would you pray for my baby and her third baby? But what occurred to me as I was reading this text while I was posting that shot, I have been hovering around my children for 33 years. My daughter lives in Chicago. She's got an amazing husband. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm hovering. I'm not far from her. All she has to do is say, Dad, and I'm in that car, and if the car breaks down, I'm hitchhiking, and if the hitchhiker tries to kill me, I'm popping him in the mouth, and I'm out, and I'm starting to walk because <laughs> I'm going to get to my baby. I'm going to get to my baby, my daughter. My daughter's going to have her daddy. If she needs her daddy, she's going to have her daddy because I'm a father, and I'm hovering around my children. When they're ticked, I may back off just a minute to give them space to figure out their stuff like the prodigal's father didn't chase him. He needed to go in the far country. But when the son started coming home, what do we find out? That father had been hovering all those years and all those months. Hovering because that's what fathers do. God is our father. Look, he uses us to go to all the world. We've got missionaries here today who have been to the far corners of the earth to to share this good news. We are the Phillips. And yet you can be sure that even if there's a place where a Philip can't get to, our God is there. He's the father not just of nations, but of every individual son and daughter. And if we will but seek and grope, our father will make sure that we find, because he is not far from each one of us. If you stumbled in today and said to yourself, um, What kind of God are these people worshiping? That's the kind of God we're worshiping. A God who's in love with us. A God who just wants to know that we see that nothing else is working and we take a step toward him. Buddy, he's out of that door of that house. He's picking up those robes and he's running down that lane to meet us because he is not far from each one of us.